Hello, this is you, Utah Phillips, the golden voice of the great Southwest, and you are indeed listening to Loafer's Glory, the hobo jungle of the mind. I hear Hallelujah Hannah marching backward down the lane. I hear the loud Hosanna of rejuvenated Jane. Lieutenant Isabella through the crowd, here she comes, raining blows with her umbrella on the cymbals and the drums. Hallelujah was the only exclamation that escaped Lieutenant Colonel Mary Jane as she slipped upon the platform in the station and was cut in little pieces by the train. Hallelujah, hallelujah, now the train is running through you. We shall gather up the pieces that remain. Loafer's Glory with uh, Steve Baker here in the studio, twisting the knobs and pushing the levers. That was the Borsdorf's wonderful theme music that they put together for this show. That little piece that I rattled off there at the beginning um, is about the Salvation Army. The story that I hear was written by A.E. Hausman's brother. If you remember Shropshire Lad by Hausman? Well, it's supposed to have been written by his brother when he got back from Europe in the First World War and was greeted at the train station, um, not by banners and flags and, and uh, a brass band, but by, by the Salvation Army with a cup of lukewarm coffee uh, and a moldy donut. That's when he wrote that little paean to the Salvation Army. Well, say in real time now, which is my time right here being alive this minute, it's 11 o'clock in the morning on Sunday. I wanted to do this, uh, I've always wanted to do Loafer's Glory on Sunday at 11 o'clock, uh, and have, and that's because it's a time that most people are out of church, and I feel as though I need to put them through some rehabilitation. And that's um, pretty much what this uh, program is going to be about, you know, about rehabilitation. Um, I, well, how would I put this? I don't want to feel like I'm walking a tightrope or not. Um, I'm I'm not a Christian, and I, I take considerable pride in that, having grown up in Utah with a Mormon bishop living on one side and all of my boyhood friends being belonging to the local Garden Park ward. I was under enormous uh, pressure to, to convert uh, to that, um, that uh, myth structure. Um, but I politely declined, generally, uh, pursuing my own spiritual path. And I think one of the, one of the things that's going on in the United States that frightens me the most, frightens me the most, that I find the most threatening, is the effort of some Christians, of uh, Christian fundamentalists, to usurp, to take over the power of the state at all levels, and down from the federal government down to the school board, and force me and all of us to run our lives according to their scripture. I find that onerous and, uh, as I say, incredibly dangerous. But I don't want to be a bigot. It's too easy to be a bigot of one kind or another in this culture now, isn't it? And I have to acknowledge to myself that there are Christians who, as Christians, had a very strong effect on my life, on the lives of the people all around them. And I want to explore today some of their music. We're going to do a program, in other words, of Christian music. Now you just sit still, all right? Don't touch that dial. Brother Juniper, Bajumpa, 
the Navajos called him, was sent out from a novena in New York uh, to dry out. He was sent out to St. Christopher's Mission of the Navajo, Episcopalian, way out in the middle of the desert, hard by uh, the four corners of Monument Valley. Um, it was a good place to dry out, because at that time you couldn't sell booze on any of the Indian reservations. But he needed it, oh yes. And one time, Brother Juniper, now this is a New York City uh, monk. Uh, he he's, uh, was out there on the side of the mission. He had torn up a big patch of detura, jimson wheat, you know. And he had carefully taken the sink water and uh, gullied it around from the back of the kitchen down there to water that and had some corn in that hot desert sun standing up about three inches off the ground. And there he was with sweat pouring off of his face, leaning on his hoe. And Father Liebler, the founder of the mission, came around the corner of the building and looked at the corn and said, My, isn't it wonderful what God and man have wrought here? And Brother Juniper looked at him and said, Yeah, you should have seen it when God was trying to do it alone. Father Libra built a church there. It was um, a, a beautiful log affair, small, but he built it with his own hands. And he, he, he was very polite. Uh, the, the Mormon missionaries would come down to, to convert the Nephites, as which they, they, they thought Native Americans were, one of the lost tribes of Israel. And he would give them the church to use. They would stand on the front steps of his church. And he would stand at the back of the, uh, back of the crowd of Navajos, uh, listening and nodding his head or, or um, otherwise taking it all in. And as the missionaries spoke, the, the Navajos didn't speak hardly any English at all, and the missionaries didn't speak any Navajo. They would um, raise their hands in the air and yell, Kachon! Kachon! That went on for about half an hour, and then, uh, being polite, Father Liebler took them on a tour of the mission. And as they were walking through the stable where the few horses were kept, he turned to them and said, Be careful, don't step in the kachon! Now, those are two stories that were told by Father Baxter Liebler to me over the dinner table there at St. Christopher's Mission in Bluff, Utah. Father Liebler had run a very wealthy parish in the east, a Good Shepherd Parish in New Jersey. But he got the call, as um, Ecclesiastics do. He was very high Episcopal, very high Episcopal. But instead of taking a mule and a Bible into the desert, he went to Cornell University, and this is in his middle years, Cornell University, and studied Navajo language, religion, and culture with Gladys Reichardt, one of the greatest living experts on that, who isn't a Navajo. With that in mind, he then went into the desert and built St. Christopher's Mission, the, the stone building where the cloisters were and the kitchen at the back on a, a U-shape, uh, the log church. The, the stone building was hewed out by Navajo stonemasons, he befriended them, and they befriended him. Now, he was the first of my true elders. The first, the first time as a young fellow that I realized that my elders had something to teach to me, um, mainly about, about a kind of moral consistency, of being morally consistent um, against powerful, powerful odds. Father Liebler grew his hair out, wore it in the Navajo bun in the back like the Navajo elders, did two sung masses a day, but and he used the, the, the uh, words from the plain song, but he used Navajo and Zuni medicine chants for the music, and it was beautiful to listen to. His, his pulpit was open to Randolph Benali, the, the local medicine man, where he could uh, do the prince's cornflower ceremonies and perform weddings. Father Liebler wrote Navajo hymns. He's passed away now. He, 
had another mission out there by Ojeto, further out into the desert, uh, and that's where he passed away. He was a very, very old man. He wrote hymns. Uh, he wrote hymns, Navajo hymns, and I'm going to rattle my brain and try to shake one of those loose, all right? Father Baxter Liebler, the Padre of the San Juan. Ta'ane Jesus pick eko na sha do. Ta'ane Jesus pick eko na sha. Ta'ane Jesus pick eko na sha do. Enich arogatli ni li. Mary so dizzy ni Mary shimala. Mary so dizzy ni Mary shimala. Mary so dizzy ni Mary shimala. Enich arogatli ni li. Nilni nibi jiji bik ek on a shadow. Nilni nibi jiji bik ek on a sha. Nilni nibi jiji bik ek on a shadow. Enicha arogasli nili. Yeah, I'm glad that that's still lodged in my brain. As when I'm out working outdoors, I hum those songs and, uh, and sing them to myself and think back into that time out in the desert. When I was a young man at St. Christopher's Mission, where there were no paved roads through Monument Valley or down into, into Bluff or Mexican Hat, High Hat or Low Hat. Well, I grew up in Salt Lake, as after we left Cleveland, Ohio in 1947. Grew up among the Mormons, got to Salt Lake in 1947, which was the centennial of the Mormon pioneer trek across the plains from Nauvoo, Illinois. And for a kid who, to that point, had been raised in an old uh, Yiddish-speaking Ashkenazi uh, Jewish neighborhood in Cleveland, to wind up in the middle of the of the Mormon centennial was uh, a case of culture shock that uh, passeth all understanding. That was July 24th, 1847, when Brigham Young, approaching him, coming down Immigration Canyon, uh, close to the Valley of the Great Salt Lake, raised up on one elbow, he was ill in the, in the wagon, and he said, this is the place. And his wife, who was riding, driving the team, turned around and said, Brigham, this is neither the time nor the place. Well, I grew up among the Mormons, and most of my friends were, uh, were LDS kids who went to the local ward, um, and I had every opportunity to be influenced, to be swayed by, by their opinions. There was also there was a, a moral consistency there that I found in Father Liebler that as much as I didn't agree with what they were saying, I had to admire. I found Mormon people as neighbors and as employers and as adversaries to be admirable. Remember Yomo Kenyatta dedicated his book, Burning Spear, to... Uh, to his adversary, said, I could have been as good as I was if you hadn't been as good as you were. Um, that's how I feel about the Mormons. The Mormons um, indirectly taught me about corruption. You know, the Mormon city council, the Mormon state legislature, uh, the Mormon sheriffs, all of the, every public office was LDS. Uh, they would pass these dumb rules, you see. But then, because they were honest, they played by them. That meant that you could uh, predict a response to any given provocation. Well, that's like money in the bank to any organizer, isn't it? It's when I left Utah and went east, went into New England, into those little towns, I found out they made up the same phony BS rules, but then if you figured out how to get around them, they changed them. And that was corruption. Well, the, the, the Mormons weren't corrupt. They were dead honest, wrong, but honest. 
I, I think that the, the, the heavy rap that's placed on the Mormons by people from the outside and by people who live there, you know, guilty of this, guilty of that. And I, and I think back on Rajneesh Puram up there in Oregon and all the political uh, cr- and financial crimes that were laid at their doorstep. And remember how Mike Royko, the great uh, columnist at the Chicago Tribune, wrote about that once. He listed all those financial and all those political crimes, and at the end of it he said, now these are all crimes that the Archdiocese of Chicago were convicted of. So that's why I feel that way about the Mormons, you know. They're just, uh, they're just, just they're another gang of Christians, good, bad, and indifferent, but uh, I got along with them pretty well. A hard, hard time they had in that state. A hard time getting over there. The Mormon capital had been burned to the ground. The prophet, Joseph Smith, had been killed along with his brother in the Carthage jail. Here's a song, and I love the music, a song by my old friend, uh, sung by my old friend Rosalie Sorrells about the trek across the plains, the lonesome roving wolves. The Mormons were camped down by the green grove where the clear waters flow from the mountains above the wind it approached all chilly and cold and we listened to the howling of those lonesome roving wolves the groans of a dying were heard in our camp and the cold chilly frost it was seen on our tent and the fear in our hearts can never be told and we listen to the howling of those lonesome roving wolves the grave of the stranger we left on the plain down by the green grove there forever to remain to remember his grave we left ashes and coals to hide him from the savages and the lonesome roving But early next morning, just at the break of day, the drums and the fifes did play unravelly. Our mules were brought in, our baggage for the pool. And now we'll bid adieu to those lonesome Rosie Sorrell's Lonesome Roving Wolves. It's a haunting song, isn't it? I wrote an anti-war song to that tune one time called The Killing Ground during the Vietnam War. Sometime I'll get around to singing it to you. 
I knew Dorothy Day, not well, but I knew her to sit down and talk uh, when she was at the, at the uh, house back there on Christie Street, the Catholic Worker House in New York City. The Catholic Worker. You know, they took my, my life and picked it up and, and shook it like a dirty rag and, and so that some of the junk would fall out that I had picked up along the way, like in the army over in Korea and, and riding on the freight trains. I think the Catholic workers might have saved my life, you understand, because during those years, uh, I was as drunk most of the time, oozing back and forth across the country on the trains and not really taking care of myself at all, with no prospects uh, that you could speak of. The Catholic worker. Actually, it was founded by Peter Murin, who is a, a French peasant laborer, philosopher, polemicist, immigrated from France to Canada, where he did all kinds of odd jobs, everything you could think of. And he always read, and he always spoke, and he always tried to change the world around him. Uh, he fetched up on Dorothy Day's uh, doorstep while at her apartment uh, when he was in his, in his advancing years, and he began to talk to her about blowing the dynamite of the church, about how the social message of the church was so different from what the bankers said it was, the politicians said it was, the archbishop said it was, so even the, what the pope said, that the social message of the church was enormously powerful and could. Um, change the the world from a, a place built on the least commendable features of a human of, of human beings uh, greed and envy could change it into a world of uh, generosity and kindness and compassion well he, he convinced her to do that. They started the Catholic worker newspaper uh, Catholic anarchists you understand they take nothing from the state and give nothing to the state. They live in voluntary poverty. Peter Murin said, I want to live in a world where it's easier to be good. When you're cold and lonely and hungry, it's hard to be good. You're throwing a brick through a window to get bread. You're hanging somebody up. So he said, let's make these corners on the skid rows, the poor section of every town, where, where there's food, clothing, warmth, and human companionship, compassion, a place where it's easier to be good. And I yes, they did that. I think there must be over 80 Catholic worker houses now. This was started in the, in the late 30s. And I can say there are over 80 of them right now. Dorothy Day, well, she was a saintly and a sanctified woman who had been a, wobulist, a wobbly, had been a communist, um, had been a, a journalist for radical publications, became a Catholic, and became the chief organizer of the Catholic worker houses. Uh, Dorothy loved to quote the saints, uh, the Catholic saints, and, and if she felt that you really weren't getting the message, if it really wasn't getting through, she'd quote one of them that said, everything you have that you don't need was stolen from the poor. Well, that'll bring you up with a round turn, won't it? Well, the great Catholic workers um, I've spoken and sung about many times with them in Hennessy, uh, a, a Catholic anarchist well, he, would, he was in prison. He wasn't a Christian. He was in prison during the First World War for conscientious objection. Um, he uh, led a hunger strike, and they threw him in the hole, uh, into, into solitary. Well, he needed something to read, and all they'd give him was the Bible, and they gave him a small-type version of it, too. Well, he read it. He read it about four times. Uh, Francis Gargan, his old friend, said, well, if they'd given him a phone book, he'd have read that. If they'd given him a cookbook, he would have become the first anarchist chef on the planet. But as it was, they gave him the Bible, so he became a Sermon on the Mount Christian, and that was it, Sermon on the Mount Christian. 
Social worker during the 1930s, started the country's first social worker union up there in uh, Minneapolis. Came out west, Dorothy Day sent him out to Salt Lake City to open the Joe Hill House for um, uh, uh, tramps and migrants and uh, footloose people like myself, and, and they're the ones who took me in and took me off the trains and sort of sorted out my life in a more sensible way. Give you an idea what Ammon was up to. Ammon wasn't looking for, for followers. He wasn't looking for people to lead. He was there to do the right thing and encourage people to, as they knew it, to do the right thing. So he did. He talked, but then he did. Um, he climbed over the barbed wire fence into the missile silo they were constructing outside of Omaha, Nebraska. Before he did that, he sent a letter to the government and to the newspapers explaining why he was doing it. And I have Francis Gargan reading his copy of that letter. Let's hear it. The letter. In accordance with the Gandhi approach of goodwill to those who oppose, I'm notifying you on Monday, the 24th of August, I'll go over the fence at the missile base as my co-worker Carl Meyer has done and as my other pacifist friends have done in our witnesses against the crime of this age, atomic war. If you read Tolstoy's Resurrection, or if you read Christ's Sermon on the Mount, the 5th, 6th, 7th chapter of Matthew, you'll better understand what I'm talking about. It may be difficult for you to believe that I did not come to Omaha to cause you, or the missile folks, or the government trouble. This is only incidental, or I have any hope of stopping the missile development program. My mission is to wake those Quakers and half-pacifists over the United States and the country who say that they believe in peace and try to wake up and do something more than just write letters to congressmen or to sign petitions addressed to congressmen. I am then telling you in advance that I'm coming here to Omaha on my own and I represent the Catholic worker, a copy which I'm enclosing for you. I do not wish any par parole from you, but will cheerfully take the sentence which you have given my friends in previous cases. Sincerely, for peace and freedom, Ammon Hennessy, Associate Editor of The Catholic Worker, August 24th, 1959. 1959, huh? As before there was really a, a major anti-nuclear movement in the country, all the way back to the First World War, Ammon Hennessy was a conscientious objector in two world wars. And he, he stuck by it. He stuck by it. When the warden, trying to get Ammon to think on socialists and communists that might be in jail with him, went to his mother. They went to his mother. She died when she was 100 and went to her and said, um, uh, said that if, he, if, he, if Ammon didn't talk, they were going to kill him. And his mother said, well, as long as he doesn't chicken out. I guess we know where he got it. Ammon spoke every Friday night at the Joe Hill House about his life and his times, and then we always sang. Um, I sang you a song by Murphy Dowie, the Cajun uh, CO, who uh, boarded up with us for a while, a, a footloose soul. Um, uh, at the ends of his talks, very often Ammon would ask Murphy to sing this song here uh, by Woody Guthrie called Jesus Christ. Now, I don't have Murph singing it. I don't even know where Murph is, but I do have its author, Woody Guthrie, singing Jesus Christ. The name of this one is They Laid Jesus Christ in His Grave. Jesus Christ was a man that traveled through the land and a hard working man and brave. 
Guthrie. Uh, that's a, a four-CD set that somebody very kindly uh, loaned to me and uh, then just forgot to ask for it back. It's hard work in the street. It's, it's dangerous work in the street, especially in these troubled times. There are two women who've been working the street in New York City for many, many years. Baby and Virginia. Uh, Baby Hoover and Virginia Brown. Uh, Two blind women, blind since birth, knew each other in Arkansas, um, led lives of constant hardship, that, uh, lives that would embitter uh, anybody, if not kill you off. These two elderly women, dressed in rags, sing gospel music on the streets of New York, and they run a little walk-in kind of a gospel mission. Uh, they live radiantly. They are absolutely filled with light and filled with joy, and I... It's a mystery to me, and I've, I've asked them, as I've asked others, um, how they're able to sustain this kind of hardship and, uh, and emerge triumphant. Um, that would be sure be good to know, wouldn't it? I tell you, it is a mystery. I don't have any answer. Um, Virginia Brown played the tin cup. She had money in a tin cup, which she rattled, and uh, Baby Hoover played the accordion. Let's, uh, let's listen to, to Virginia Describe how she uses the cup, and then listen to them both on the streets of New York doing Pilgrim Land. Sometimes people don't really want to uh, come up close to a blind person for some reason or, or other. You know, they don't often always want to come up close. So I hold it way out, arm's length, and uh, they'll they'll come and throw money in it. And this noise that you heard. Uh, in uh, the beating out uh, uh, accompanying some of our songs was this cup with uh, right now it has a quarter and a nickel in it and as I as I busk on the street as I sing on the street every song I beat out to the rhythm of this cup Yeah. 
Kenny Hall. Isn't that jolly? Isn't that jolly? I went to a, a hemorrhoid faith healer once named Anal Roberts. I've got to stop that. This Christianity is serious business, you know, to make jokes about Oral Roberts. I bought one of Oral Roberts records, but I couldn't play it because the hole healed over. See? The missions. Down in the missions. I've spent a lot of time in one mission uh, or another. 
getting the coffee in, it's called, you know, uh, it's coffee and a donut or coffee and a sermon. They call that going for your coffee and. and in fact, there was a cafe in Spokane, Washington for many years called Coffee Ann's uh, that I used to frequent. Uh, what are those missions for? Why are they down there? Well, people who are who are drunk, who are people who are lost, people who have have no money and have no prospects of any, people whose work has run out on them, who are too old to do the work they were born to, something in their mind broke and it cast them down on the street in the alleys, the doorways. It's like Dorothy Day said, that we're in a class war, a war between the rich and poor. But now, just like a shooting war, if there's a shooting war, you're going to have aid stations, and the wounded from that, those battles are taken to the aid stations, the Red Cross tents. Well, the missions are aid stations in this class war between rich and poor. And those aid stations, those missions, I never saw one, one opened up by the industrial workers of the world. My union, I never saw one opened up by the Socialist Worker Party or, or any but one of the, of the labor unions. I know only one labor soup kitchen, that's Labor Cares there in, in, uh, uh, so in Wisconsin, Kenosha. No, it's been up to the Christian people year after year, all the way into the last century, to open up those aid stations for the casualties of the class war and care for them. And they deserve to be honored for that. They deserve to be honored for that. Reverend Manuel Huffman ran the storefront mission there in Spokane, Washington, down on uh, West Main, no, East Main. He had been an alcoholic most of his life. He had been a derelict. He had been a drug addict. And... That they, that people despaired of him. His wife stuck with him through thick and thin, finally made an appointment for him to go to a tent show with Oral Roberts outside of town. This was in the 50s, on the edge of Spokane. Well, he disappeared. They found him. He drank a half a gallon of wine. They promised him he could pop three pills if he would go with them to Oral Roberts and stand up. He went to the tent show when it, it bombed. When they called everybody to the front who wanted to take the oath, take the pledge, whatever it is they do, I've not been to one of those affairs, Reverend Manuel Huffman went forward, and he never had another drink, and he never popped another pill, and he went back on the skids and opened up the Deliverance Gospel Mission to care for the similarly afflicted around him. And I've sat with him at hours and said, Reverend Huffman, what happened? At that moment, what happened? At that instant, what happened? He said, well, my heart opened up and the love of the Lord poured into it. I said, no, I want to know what happened. What, what actually happened there? I mean, why is it that you're able to do this? That's a great mystery to me. I think that should be a great mystery to all of us. I'm not selling anything. I'm not trying to talk into anything. But acknowledge that there are people around us in whom that mystery exists. And it would probably be a good idea to think about... Uh, where that mystery exists in our own life, in, in a completely different form, perhaps. Uh, a different philosophy, a, a different theology, but, but the mystery itself. There's a band that formed up around Reverend Huffman from the Sound Hole Music, Paul Kinderman and his crowd, and they'd sing on Wednesday nights. Uh, Reverend Manuel Huffman sang in that high, high Arkansas voice and played the mandolin. It was called the Deliverance Gospel Band. Well, you're Paul Kinderman in the crowd and Reverend Huffman playing the mandolin, singing the harmonies uh, on Windows of Heaven.
Last night I dreamed of heaven. I wanted so much to enter in. But when the book of life was open, there was my life of sin. I was looking through the wind. I saw the kingdom of God And there was the footprints of Jesus On the path where my Savior had gone I dreamed I saw my mother Up there With outstretched arms, ran to meet me, but I had waited too long. I was looking through the windows of heaven. I saw the kingdom of God, and there was On the path where my Savior had Mission, uh, Deliverance Gospel Mission there in Salt Lake City, across from the Vineyard Tavern, Tony's place where people used to go and cash their checks because they didn't have any identification, and he was willing to do that. Music does have that power to bring people together, doesn't it? Singing together. 
I was at a festival there in uh, New York State, there at Voorheesville, called the Old Songs Festival. Now, that's the inveterate old folk music audience, about 5,000 of them, people who've grown up with folk music, uh, a lot of them urban people who came up during the, the great folk music scare of the night, late 50s and 1960s. There's a big, there was a fairgrounds there, and there's a big old barn, a big huge barn, and uh, about half of that crowd, and I'm talking about Jews and Catholics and atheists and union organizers, all crammed in that barn, and they were singing shape note music. Even Shakespeare acknowledged in one of his plays that there was a kind of music that depended for the singing of it on the shape of the notes. Four notes, different shapes. Let's listen to those people. This was recorded in the Sheep Barn during the Old Songs Festival. Listen to all those people come together, do a shape note song. Uh, we're going to start out with Fa Sola, Finest Kind, from Canada, singing about shape noting, then the Sheep Barn singing Swanton. And then let's listen to the black shape note singers from Alabama, the Wiregrass Sacred Harp Singers. Um, no matter privilege of working with at the Folklife Festival in New York City, no, in Washington, D.C., While walking out one evening in a little southern town, I saw some signs upon a fence and looked them up and down. And there among the notices for auction sales and cars was a poster that read Fasola. Folks said that in the morning there would be a special sing for everyone that lived in town and friends that they might bring. The singers each would have a chance to lead their favorite tune. They would sing all day up in the hall with potluck lunch at noon, and they would sing Fala Soap and make the heavens ring like they did so long ago. Their hearts would fill with joy and love to sing in praise of God above and sing out with a la sofa. Wow. 
was a blessing, was my favorite song. So he sends his showers of blessings down. He sends his showers of blessings down to cheer the plains below. He makes the grass, he makes the grass, the mountains crown. He makes the grass and mountains crown and corn in valleys grow and corn in valleys grow. My friends, if you should ever find this world is not your home, you've lost your faith in God or man and think you're all alone. Or else you've met such happiness that music fills your heart. Whether you are feeling joy or woe, sing from the sacred harp and you just sing. Sing falaso. And join the gospel choir that began so long ago in city, town, or village square. Well, we're going to have to move along fairly alacritously here. I'm going to have to pass over the Shakers uh, that I knew and, and a bit of their music. And old Nimrod Workman uh, from uh, Kentucky, the coal miner, and I knew him when he was 90 years old. I'll, I'll pull those out uh, again for you. Go down to New Orleans. I was down making a record there with Andre DeFranco last December. And while we were making that record, I heard that there was a funeral uh, going on uh, about six blocks away at a Catholic uh, cathedral. Well, I went over there, and the leader of the Native American contingent in the uh, Mardi Gras parade had passed away. A very popular, very venerable man. There were people in all kinds of feathers and beadwork. There were all kinds of musicians jamming in the street. I got inside. I wedged myself between people and stood at the back, looked up, saw all those stained glass windows of the biblical figures, all white, gazing down on a completely black congregation with a black priest. I saw the faces of those saints, uh, the, uh, the, the busts of the saints, all those friends that Dorothy Day talked about that the poor loved and needed when they came in off of the street. Then I saw the Kwanzaa banners hanging from the ceiling announcing the days of, uh, of Kwanzaa. Out later after the funeral, the band struck up and we all marched to the graveyard, just like you've heard about. Now that band was the Magnificent Brass Band, and I have a recording of the Magnificent Str- doing that funeral in the church down by the riverside, out in front, just a closer walk with me. Walking through the streets of the city, which I'm sure you'll recognize as the march progressed, and then in the graveyard, didn't he ramble? Let's hear it. Thank you. 
do fighting each other and think you're doing well and the sinners on the outside going to heaven that's all I tell you that's all but you better have Jesus now I tell you that's all a lot of preachers is preaching and think they're doing well and all they want is your money and you can go to hell and that's all I tell you that's all, but you better out Jesus now. I tell you that's all. There's another class of preachers that's high in speech. They had to go to college to learn how to preach, and that's all. I tell you that's all, but you better out Jesus now. I tell you that's all. But you can go to the college and you can go to the school. But if you ain't got Jesus, you an educated fool, and that's all now. I tell you that's all. But you better have Jesus now. I tell you that's all. That kind of a man, he's hard to convince. A man can't preach unless he's standing. That's all now. I tell you that's all. But you better have Jesus now. I tell you that's all. When people jump from church to church, you know the conversion don't amount to much, and that's all. I tell you that's all. But you better have Jesus now. I tell you that's all. When Jesus came here on a dividing day, gonna call the sheep, turn and drive the goats away, and that'll be all now. I tell you that's all. But you better have Jesus now. I tell you that's all. It's right to stand together, it's wrong to stand apart, cause none's gonna end up but the pure and heart, and that's all. Well, we're closing that out with Washington Phillips, my favorite. 1929 recording down in Dallas, Texas, playing the dulciolas, that strange instrument behind him. This has been Loafer's Glory, the Hobo Jungle of the Mind. I am you, Utah Phillips, the golden voice of the great Southwest. Thanks for paying attention. This is Archibald McLeish's Job. We can never know. He answered me like the stillness of a star that silences us asking. No, Sarah, no. We are, and that is all our answer. We are, and what we are can suffer. But what suffers? Loves. And love will live its suffering again, risk its own defeat again, endure the loss of everything again, and yet again, and yet again, in doubt, in dread, in ignorance, unanswered, over and over, with the dark before, the dark behind it, and still live, still love.